Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Enjoy yourself, Captain. It's an interesting planet. I believe you'll find it quite pleasant. Very much like your Earth. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. are actually about us they're not just about the you know some guy named hercules or heracles who went around and wrestled these things when he's wrestling this thing that changes shape that's like us wrestling we go through all these different shapes in our in our own life it's like well now you're shaped like this because you're an adult right on all right, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Steves, here with my co-host, Jameson, and our friend Adam with us today is an amazing oh, yeah, yeah. guest, an Hello. excellent presenter on all things astrology, mythology, astronomy, the whole gamut of everything you can see in the sky. This guy's pretty much <laughs> nailed it down in one of his nine, what is it, nine books you're at now, David? Is it Ten? Well, it is, it's 10, but one of them is a second edition. So it kind of okay. counts as nine, yeah, so. nine different books. One I changed, I, I had to change and update some things. So it's really two different books in terms of writing time, but really it's nine. We'll go well, with nine. no further ado, our, uh, our guest today, David Matheson. Uh, you've heard him on the Grimerica show, the Higher Side Chats, and of course, Tinfoil Hat, uh, my boss, Sam will... Sammy T. But uh, yeah, David, I mean, you've done some excellent work um, presenting this kind of information on podcasts. I think you're uh, clearly, you know, educated in, in how to run a room and, and, and present information to a class. And, and I think you did a fantastic job wrangling Sam. I think one of his favorite quotes is, you know, I flunked first grade. So if you can teach Sam something, <laughs> That's a, you know, that's a badge of honor. So, so honestly, you know, all these podcasts I've heard you on, you've done such a fantastic job presenting. I kind of wanted to focus more on like what made you start this journey uh, today, because, you know, people can go to the Grimerica show, the higher side chats, Tinfoil Hat. Those are fantastic shows where you've done that work and we'll get into a little bit of it today, but I really wanted to get into like who you are, David, and, and, and what, you know, brought you into this, uh, this awesome career you have. Yeah, well, thanks, Mark, and good to meet you, and Adam and Jay, at least over the Zoom, you know, we've, we've exchanged, uh, the best we can, yeah, we've yeah. exchanged some, some messages, you know, and, uh, and coordinated before, but this is the first time we've really actually talked, so it's, you know, a pleasure to be on your show, congratulations on starting my family thinks I'm crazy. I think that's a pretty good, great, great title for a podcast. Um, Thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to, to talk a little bit about kind of my journey to this point so far and learn about you guys, your journey so far. I mean, the most, really, I think we should just talk about skating for the next couple hours. Since yeah. I, I've now found out that Mark knows how to skate bowls and I'm just like, I'm just oh. baby baby bowls dropping into baby bowls. Right <laughs> so <laughs> who told you this? Where'd you find this out? Did I? You, you said it. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> oh my god. Jameson is uh, is the skateboarder amongst us. He actually kind of got me into skateboarding. But Jay, Jay's got some videos on my Instagram page of him ripping up the bowl. Oh yeah, it's the only bowl in Connecticut that we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite the hunt. It's like looking for the uh, Golden City, you know, where we're trying to find a new skate park. But yeah, once... well, we, that's great. We, um, you know, it actually is, it's related because, um, you know, when the, I'm actually going to make a little video about this. I'm going to put together maybe a course, online courses for people who 
would prefer to like just see video rather than read books. And I'm thinking kind of talking a little bit about my story because it gets into what this is all for. Mm. It's like in the movie Point Break, um, the first one, not the, not the remake, which I've never seen. Have you guys seen Point Break? I haven't. Yeah, I have so. not. <laughs> I see blank oh, faces. Well. All right. That's, <laughs> that's okay. Well, then I won't use that metaphor. But, um, you know, I was actually into surfing and really into skydiving before that movie came out. <laughs> and so I, you guys know I went to the military academy. I was on the parachute team at the military academy. So okay, I yeah. basically skydived every single day, even in the, you know, now it's November. And I know it's getting cold back where you guys are. And when we'd go up to 13, we wouldn't usually go up to 13,000 feet, but you lose, I forget how many degrees every thousand feet you go up. And we'd be in an open Huey with the door helicopter with the doors wide open. Oh my wind God. Blowing around. And there's a, a certain seat in the, they call it the hell hole because the wind would blow around and swirl around in there. And you'd get so cold. Um, we'd wear what was called snivel gear <laughs> to keep warm. But uh, I was really into skydiving and all these kinds of, and, and going to the military academy, I was searching for something. And I think I've been kind of searching. The reason I bring up Point Break, it came out in 91, right after I graduated mm. from West Point. So I graduated West Point in 91. I was already into those things that they were showing in that movie. And they say in that movie, you know, um, the Lori Petty character, Tyler, his girlfriend says to, uh, Johnny Utah, the, uh, the uh, uh, character played by uh, Keanu Reeves, she says, ah, you've got that look, I've seen it. You know, and Bodhi can smell it a mile away. You're searching for something, you, you're, you're driven. Uh, that is a true statement. I think that's why that movie resonates with so many people. It certainly resonated with me when I was 21, 22 years old. And I had already, I was already searching for those kinds of things. And I was also uh, became very um, literalist Christian around the same time. It was like, I, I, you know, I might've even joined a cult if that, you know, if, if, if I had stumbled into the wrong place or something, because I was really, really looking um, for something. Yeah. And what I think you're really looking for back comes out from that movie again i mean it's got a lot of cheesy aspects to the movie it's certainly a lot of parts that are just not believable at all such as a lot of the skydiving stuff you know <laughs> it just doesn't actually work uh, but it's still a great movie but in that movie bodhi says to uh bodhi is the character played by patrick swayze and he's like the surfer slash bank robber slash free spirit who says uh you don't know it, but you've already got it right there. And he points to Keanu Reeves' forehead. It's right there inside of you. And, and in, in that same conversation, he says, surfing is that place where you lose yourself and you find yourself. Okay. And so what was I looking for all that time? If you talk to some of the like most cutting edge psychologists that, whose work I've only recently discovered, you're looking for yourself. You're actually trying to reconnect with some part of you that's been suppressed or uh, that you've become separated from. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer, but um, I was always kind of like searching for that. And I think uh, myself, if, and it's almost weird to talk about yourself because we've like, we've got defense mechanisms that like suppress that, but it's like leading me towards these certain things. And eventually I found them. It's not like I found them when I was 21. Um, it was like I was searching and searching. I'm still searching and, and figuring this stuff out. But Yeah, I think know, that's that, kind of the root of the name of my podcast really is, is that yearning inside of me. I've always felt like a, you know, individual amongst uh, followers, not to disrespect any of my peers. Uh, but, you know, growing up in school, I did feel like quite of a iconoclast, a little bit of a black sheep, you know. And martial arts for me was the kind of catalyst for that, just like surfing or skydiving, you know, any type of physical activity that pushes you past this kind of mental barrier where you're really, you're exploring your, your threshold, you're exploring your barriers, 
and then you're pushing past them and what that adds to your psyche is immense it's something that i've used you know on my journey since uh cultivating that skill but yeah my family thinks i'm crazy because i got into all of these uh fringe ideas and theories and stuff because i have this fire burning inside of me and i think david you probably relate to that as well so what were you like in high school david what was uh high school like for you that's a that's an interesting interesting question it's never been asked on any podcast before <laughs> so yeah i'm i'm uh you know pretty i guess i'm pretty introverted um as a person uh but i so i was really kind of nerdy and very intellectual and i got made fun of a lot in like seventh and eighth grade but i think people are the most maybe that's like the maybe for guys at least i don't know maybe it's different periods of time ages for girls but i think that's when guys might be the least tolerant of one another is like seventh and eighth grade and like in when high school yeah it's like that's when i would get, <laughs> that's when i would get into the most problems yeah with other people i think it was like sixth seventh and eighth grade i remember one time we had a uh, assignment in uh like seventh or eighth grade and it was like talk about your favorite place. I think it was in Spanish class. So you had to talk about it in Spanish, but I talked about the library. <laughs> I just got, you know, and everybody thought that was just so, you know, make funnable. And I'm like, what, what's so wrong with that? You know, I love the library. Yeah, I grew up in San Mateo. Alone, yeah, the San, Mateo alone, San Mateo Library. I loved it. I would go up to the third floor. They've since rebuilt it into a much bigger and nicer facility, but it was so cool. Yeah. And like, but later, like people would write in my yearbook, have fun at the library, you know, which is actually, <laughs> which is actually kind of, you know, now they're being nice about it, maybe, but I was, you know, I was really like that. But um, in high school, in the senior yearbook, you know how they have like, most popular, most attractive or whatever, they also in ours, they had most changed since freshman year which that's what I got most changed since freshman too, year. Yeah, there you I go. Got that too. That's awesome, man. Yeah, and actually I've been into martial arts since about 1992 pretty heavily too. Which, oh. which, uh, which style of martial arts do you do? Mark? Well, I started uh, from a Krav Maga guy who uh -huh. was teaching us like, you know, the commercial karate. And uh -huh. then I, uh, I moved up the ranks, so to speak, to a, a really cool guy who taught me Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He himself was a a brown belt with a purple stripe in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and then he had a, a guy under his wing who was uh, an expert in Muay Thai and actually fought in Thailand a white guy fighting oh. Thailand and so that, that that was the foundation for me and I, I've always loved Bruce Lee and I bought all of his books the only three he wrote and uh, and I really just kind of created my own path in martial arts and and David you can't tell from the video here but I'm 6'8 so like oh, growing wow. up I was kind of a target, you know, like this tall, skinny, you know, kid, you know, everybody looked up to me, but nobody thought I was uh, tough because you could see right through me. I was so thin, you know? So, uh, so yeah, martial arts for me was, was a big change and it, it kind of, you know, I recommend it to anyone, especially people younger than, than me, uh, because it just builds your confidence, man. Like once you have that confidence, it doesn't turn you into a bully. It turns you into someone who, who sees other bullies and says like, you know, I, I understand them. I don't want to beat them up. I want them to be better, you know, and that's what martial arts brings people. Not to get on a tangent there. No, but, that's it. That's totally related. You know. I think that's totally related to this concept of self that we can talk about some more because I think these ancient disciplines, I'm convinced that these ancient disciplines that have survived in largely in other cultures where the Roman Empire didn't and literalist Christianity didn't stamp them out like yoga like martial arts like qigong or internal type work are ways of uh, connecting with yourself in order to reach your full potential and it has nothing to do like you said with beating other people up and uh you know, if you think about like kind of the stereotypical martial arts master in a movie, whether it's Mr. Miyagi or some of the Hong Kong movies, where there's, you know, there's often a bad guy martial arts master who's the villain. And then there's the, the good guy who's very, he's very self-assured, but he's 
you know, humble and he's trying no. to help the village rather than trying to steal from the village. Anyway, I'm wearing no, actually. You yeah. look at all five of Bruce Lee's movies and every movie has the same trope, right? Bruce yeah. Lee gets into maybe two or three conflicts before he ever throws a fist. Mm-hmm. And every time in those two yeah. three initial conflicts, you, you feel as a, as a viewer of the movie, like, why isn't he fighting? You know, like, you're yeah. like, where's the action? <laughs> but you realize like, oh, he's smarter than that. He's, you know, the real kick-ass moment is not going to happen, you know, right off the bat because he's smarter than that, you know? Yeah. And, and to bring up Miyagi, I think that kind of, you've used this metaphor a lot uh, throughout your podcast of like, you know, Miyagi shows um, Daniel-san how to wax the car and how to paint the fence. And this kind of metaphor you use to like, you know, the stars um, above our head are this kind of, we can wax the car and paint the fence when we learn what the stars mean and how they relate to the story. And the Roman Catholic or Christian or this kind of Western influence on the world has taught us to take things so literally. And in effect, it's sort of like the Miyagi, like, instead of waxing the car leading to something, it's just waxing the car. And <laughs> then everything right. waxing anything the, about car, the car, <laughs> you know? And, and then we're all atheists 100, 200, 500 years later, because people are like, I'm done waxing that damn car. It's shiny. What am I going to do with it? You know? Yeah. So and, it, or waxing the car is there to just to, to suppress us. Or waxing the car, uh, yeah. you know, I hate waxing the car. I walked away from all that. And yeah. you never learned that it was actually that's the way to like realize or a way to realize your full potential. So yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. And I was going to say, um, yeah, I've been, I, uh, this, I'm actually wearing one of my old, the old, uh, Wing Chun shirt from the nineties. Hold on to that. Uh, from, and, um, so my Sifu's Sifu, uh, was good friends with Bruce Lee and awesome. both, both of them learned from, Master Ipman. So, um, so I think we're drawn to these same sorts of things. It's like you're searching for yourself, and those are ways that you can find it. So I've done Wing Chun since '92, um, but yeah, in high school I wasn't doing it. I just, um, but I did become start to become more outgoing. I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but I, and then I ended up going to the military academy, where obviously you can't really be shy and um, well, so I imagine you know that and, and all the time. Yeah. Well, you're you're spending time in the library. Obviously, very interested in learning, learning about the world around you. You know, I I could relate to that. I spent a lot of time in the library at that age. But uh, what what kind of made you decide to take such a serious step, like towards a career in the military? You know, like was it patriotism? Was it like the urge to like excel or? Like what kind of motivation did you have to join uh, West Point? I mean, that's a really esteemed school too. Congratulations. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, it, uh, it's interesting to kind of try and analyze your own motives sometimes. It's something, by the time I was 13 or 14, I was watching the movie Patton, you know, mm-hmm. with George C. Scott and um, reading books about these different generals. And I noticed, well, they all seem to have gone to West Point. Um, and uh, you know, my dad at one point said, you know, you'll really be a leader if you go there. Something, not, maybe not those exact words, but if you go there, you really become a leader. And uh, that really stuck with me. I was like, yeah, I like that. Um, uh, there's probably other motives too. I mean, I think when I, I'm not a, I, I was never into psychology. And uh, at West Point, you have to take psychology and you have to take physics and you have to take chemistry and a whole bunch of other, you know, geo- uh, you know mapping geological um, ways of mapping the ground and terrain analysis and all kinds of military history. Um, and I always kind of poo-pooed psychology, even when I was taking it at West Point. I was like, this is a bunch of, you know, la-la land kind of stuff. But really, I think the motives that are going on in our heads. And the, the reason I keep coming back to this is 
that's what I think the myths are showing us. They are really showing us this pattern of the suppressed self. It's suppressed down there by these kind of defense mechanisms that have grown up in order to cope with the world, to cope with different situations that we've encountered, even when maybe when we were very young, through no fault of our parents, but just the, the whole society and the way things are structured um, lead to the development of these kinds of, uh, well, we all have parts, or we all have different, this is what Dr. Richard Schwartz talks about in IFS, internal family systems, he calls them parts. He learned this from talking to thousands of patients, but you know, there's that commercial that says you're not you when you're hungry or something. It's like, it's got the Snickers bar. You're not, you're not <laughs> yeah. you when you're hungry. Like the, you know, the family man, he turns into some totally different persona and then gets the Snickers bar. And, he turns yeah, and they say, have a Snickers or something. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, um, what does that mean? You're not you or, well, that wasn't me back there. Or, you know, Hey, I'm really sorry about that. That, that wasn't me. Well, in a sense, it was you, you know, the person you're apologizing to myself. Oh, yes, that's you. But really, it's a part of you. We all have these parts, but we've been taught that it's uh, psychotic or, or pathological to have different parts, you know, split personalities. But we actually have these different parts that take over. I have distinct parts that will take over, like Mr. Critic or Mr. Should Have. I should have caught that wave, you know, or on that wave, I should have done this. And that's actually a helpful a helpful part of you that's trying to do a critical analysis, but you can let Mr. Should have, like sometimes when I'm surfing, I have to say, okay, Mr. Should have, could you please go meditate under a tree somewhere while I just surf? Because Mr. Should have will wreck your surfing session. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's a useful part and you can't get through life without that part of you. But it can get out of control and you want to get it back in touch with that part of you where you lose yourself and you find yourself that yeah was talking about in that movie that kind of flow state almost you know that flow state you're in that flow state you know and you have a thought a doubting thought like the doubting thomas or the or the should a man that's inside of your head it's like that's that instance when you hit a little pebble and fall off the board or, or you hit a, a, a wave that you weren't supposed to, I, I'm foreign to surfing. We don't have waves on this coast. But. <laughs> you have some, you do. Yeah. But you need a thick wetsuit or, or toughen up uh, like the guy in my octopus teacher who doesn't wear a wetsuit. Well, we're in, we're in Long Island Sound down there. Yeah, they they yeah. take everything away from us. They take all the waves from us. So it's just. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got to go to Maine or down to uh, like. Rhode Island. The, Rhode Island <laughs> is right where uh, the waves pick up. Okay. Yeah. So, but, um, but how about dropping in on a, on any sort of a small, (laughs) how many times I have hesitated on stomping down because I'm, you know, just starting to drop in. I, I skated when I was little up until I was 12 and then I just like stopped. And now I'm like, really back getting into it for some reason but um well the best kids if you're dropping in if you hesitate you're toast yeah Yeah. the best people who who skate when it comes to the drop-in are the dudes who just don't care they just don't think about at least that's the appearance they might have it going on in their head but to me when you watch they just don't care they they well at first they did (laughs) at first they did by the time they've been doing it for 10 years it's like yes they could do it in their sleep but at first that you hesitate (laughs) like you know you're getting up to that edge there and until you understand what the what it feels like to actually go through with it it's hard to have the confidence to do it that's the biggest thing with skateboarding and that's why you see the kids uh, getting really good when they're younger is because if you're younger starting out, you seem to have like less of a fear factor. Uh, they seem <laughs> to be a little fearless and will try it. Yeah, you break your quicker. arm. Oh, you get patched up in two days. <laughs> less, less far to fall. At least that's yeah. how it was for me, you know, growing up skateboarding and falling my whole life, realizing that that is uh, a new hesitation. And once you have full confidence, then... Uh, start to get better after a while hey uh so it's it's really it's really a joy it's it's really a joy to to do those things i think go ahead mark yeah no real quick we're uh coming to the end of our free zoom meeting recording here so start up another one and get you back in david okay 
uh, yeah, right on. kind of hack the system here. But for all the listeners, uh, we might actually break this uh, halfway free, halfway to the Patreon. So uh, if you're not subscribed to the Patreon by now, go ahead and subscribe and you might get the rest of this uh, episode with David. Or if you're lucky, you'll get the whole thing for free. We don't know yet, but <laughs> we're back. Um, Thank you again for joining us, folks. Um, Mark's video is taking an intermission. <laughs> taking a little intermission. I had to get some popcorn from the uh, concession stand. Uh, but we were just talking about the flow state and skateboarding. And, and something that you were kind of hitting on, David, that I wanted to mention was like, so a point that I really got from listening to you on the Higher Side Chats, Great America Show, uh, both of which I am a subscriber of. Go ahead and subscribe to the Plus. You know, that's the best podcast out there. But anyway, this idea that mythology and the stars above us can kind of show us a window into our own psychology. And it's almost like, to me, I've always had the suspicion that the, that the folklore and the, the mythology of the world is self-serving it's almost like the oldest form of self-help you know it's like the best way to, to kind of get this story across is to have a picture to point to and you know obviously ancient man sitting around a fire looking up at the sky there's no light pollution the stars are as bright as they could ever be you know and uh and and i think it was like early man's way of kind of like feeling each other and passing on that healing information onto the next generation you know we want we want people to know how to build a strong family we want people to know how to build a strong community and and i think these myths really like point to little pieces of of like human humanity you know how we can we can you know you could say it better than i can don't let me go off here my connection's unstable <laughs> yeah so there's a whole ton of things in there that that you said that are super interesting to, to explore, um, you know, why would you pass it along in the form of stories or um, was it, was it early humans, you know, um, or was there, I, I mean, I, I, we could, we could uh, chew on that or, or like worry it a little bit the way a dog worries, uh, you know, a chew toy, you know, kind of, uh, wrestle with it a little bit because there's a, a figure, a, a thinker, a, a writer who I refer to a lot, Alvin Boyd Kuhn, you might have seen in some of yeah. my blog posts. And you uh, mentioned him on uh, your episode of Zero with Sam, right? Right, in right. August. And he, he says that, you know, these metaphors for these profound truths, you can't come up with them unless you're already on this very high level. In other words, it wasn't, the, what we're usually taught is, well, primitive humans were cavemen and then they were kind of hunter-gatherers and then they were maybe herders, you know, herding sheep or cows or pastoral kind of lifestyle. And then they started making crops. And at that point we could finally have labor, et cetera. And, you know, because before then it's pretty much, hey, everybody needs to be hunting and gathering or we're going to starve here you don't have time to have stargazer you know <laughs> specialist well we're just going to hunt and gather for the stargazer in the in the group and <laughs> they won't do anything but philosophize so um what alvin boyd kuhn said was you already had to know the higher in order to put together these metaphors using whatever the lower thing was kind of like mr miyagi had to already be a master before he could say, hmm, what should I use? Oh, yeah, wax the car. Mm. Uh, that, will, that will teach him. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I, like, he didn't, he didn't become a master through waxing the car. He kind of, you know, that came right. afterwards. Right. It's not like early, early humans were waxing cars and then they evolved it into karate. You know, yeah. that didn't, that's what Alvin Boyd Kuhn is saying. He's saying, this came from something very, very advanced. And it may be that there was a, I think it's very likely there was a very ancient culture that predates ancient Egypt, predates ancient Mesopotamia that had this system that got destroyed by some kind of cataclysm. And then 
that may be when humans were living in caves was after that. And so they were preserving with the materials that they, they didn't have the high culture materials anymore. So they were preserving it as best they could through that period. And then Egypt and Mesopotamia kind of sprung up again when, when conditions were safe. It may have been that the whole world was radioactive. That's what Dr. Robert Schock, when he talks about the solar coronal mass ejection may have made the surface even unsafe to live on. So people had to live in these underground cities and caves. And these civilizations just kind of suddenly emerge out of nowhere with these tremendous right in the- Oh man. There he is. <laughs> Did you hear any of that? <laughs> I'm back, I'm sorry. That's ah, all right. So um, yeah, but it, it totally applies to our life. I think that was kind of the jumping off point was that this applies to the, these ancient, whoever put this together, it is, it is to help us with kind of the situations that we're in right now. Yeah. Well, even at this very, you know, present moment in this right. modern age. Yeah, I might have, I might have kind of uh, it maybe pointed at maybe a misunderstanding there, but I, I do get what you're saying. Like ancient man, as we know it, we kind of have this fable idea of, hunter-gatherers and we're not really sure I mean if you're familiar with the work of Graham Hancock which I'm sure you are David um, you know we're, we're starting to learn that civilization ancient civilization might have been way more advanced than we are today so I think that if anything like the oral tradition of preserving these stories and using the stars as a kind of record to hold these uh, words to was kind of like a makeshift thing yeah it's like a, a in the time being we're kind of uh going through this ancient cataclysm these people were going through this cataclysm they had no other choice but to use what was around them to try to preserve what they had just lost potentially uh you know and, and there's a lot we can get into there but but as far as like you know right right yeah that's 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 i agree with that but yeah, I, I just wanted to clear that up because, you know, that, that when I was um, in college, I actually was studying anthropology. And one of the big reasons that led me to kind of get away from that was because of how many misunderstandings these professors were conveying to me. Uh, you know, they really just felt like they didn't know what uh, the kind of broader picture was. And I was already seeing it as a student, you know, with the help of certain books like Graham Hancock's book I had at a young age and uh, Mark Booth wrote this amazing book called The Secret History of the World that really changed uh, my understanding of uh, ancient cultures and, and ancient history. But that really led me to see this kind of divide. And, and I had a question written down, David, that I kind of thought of, and this kind of leads us to it. It's like, where is your work um, clashed with traditional academia's interpretations of um, astronomy, astrology, astrotheology, because, you know, I was only in a community college, and it was very blatant how little this anthropology, you know, course had to offer me as a, you know, inquisitive person. So, you know, I'm sure you've experienced similar things, you know, running into, like, more traditional, like the Smithsonian Institute type people who want to say that, you know, Globeck and Tepe was just farmers and they buried it for, you know, whatever reason they don't even know. So. Right. Can I add right. to that question and possibly like what the military might've, you know, <laughs> taught about that as well and how that might've differed? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> good, good, good questions. <laughs> um, so really in the military, I wasn't really into all this while I was in the military, although I did get to go back and teach at West Point and I got to teach the Odyssey. So I was really already, I, I loved the myths even when I was very young. Um, and I uh, was always fascinated by the myths, but I didn't have the understanding that the myths were based on the stars until after I'd left the army. But, um, but it's a really good, it's a really good question because there's, there's one thing to not know, you know, and so there's nothing wrong with the anthropology department saying, well, this is what we do know, or this is what the theory is. This is what we don't know. The problem is, I think, 
you probably agree that the problem is where they won't consider other par that their paradigm might be, you know, there is evidence, the conventional story is kind of like, I, I, I use this metaphor too, but I think it's a really perfect metaphor. In a Scooby-Doo mystery, when the Scooby-Doo shows up, or same thing in a Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie, when the, when the outsider shows up, the authorities already have a story. They've already got it figured out. Well, we know that this crime was done this way, or, you know, and then the outside figure comes in and says, well, that's interesting, but look at this evidence over here that doesn't fit that story. Now, what the authorities should say at that point is, huh, well, that's interesting. I wonder if we need to change our story. Maybe our story is actually you know, fatally flawed right from the, at the root, and we need to change the whole story. We got to be open to that if we want to solve the crime. But that's never what happens. And that's not what happens in academia either. They don't go, oh, you're right. It's possible that the uh, myths of the Americas and the myths of ancient Egypt and the myths of the ancient Japan and ancient China and ancient Australia are all based on the same system. How can we explain that? We, I guess we have to change our theory to explain that. That's not what they do. They say, get out, get right out of town. We've already decided that they didn't, you know, that there was no collusion between these two, <laughs> these two continents. Wow. And yet what we find is the same system is in effect around the globe. And so you mentioned Graham Hancock, who big influence on me, fantastic um, examination of the evidence including evidence in myth, but also evidence in archaeology. You know, around the world, we find pyramids that have similar ratios and also similar connections to things like processional numbers, which procession. So these are places where I can show you clear conflicts with kind of the conventional story. So in addition to all the archaeological evidence, we also have myth mythological evidence which stands alongside all the archaeology you know archaeological evidence and says clearly there's evidence that shows that the conventional narrative is fatally flawed it's like it's got to be thrown right out the conventional narrative cannot be right it's in need of radical revision radical meaning right down to the root right down to the radish <laughs> you know a radish is called that because it's a root the, the whole story needs to be pulled up by the roots because it's wrong. It cannot be right because we find the same system in use around the world. And academia is just not ready to admit that they could all be using the same system. It's kind of like plate tectonics, plate, the, the theory of plate tectonics or continental drift. When that was introduced in like 1906, all the geologists just laughed them out of the room. They were like, continents can't drift. Yeah. The, the, the ocean floor is solid. How could they drift? Well, and another took, one is uh, like the seventies. Another one that I like is gorillas up until like the <laughs> 1920s. People thought gorillas were a made up animal. Now you can go to any zoo anywhere and a gorilla will smash the glass right in front of you, you know, but yeah. In the 1900s, they thought it was a mystical creature, right. you know. So yeah, right. Or even a black swan. I've heard that the you know the term of a black swan because they're mostly in Australia. People in Europe didn't believe in black swans. Oh. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I didn't even know black swans existed. Huh. Did you say that, Adam? <laughs> yeah. Come on, Adam. <laughs> I did not know. I really didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can see them in, uh, in like the 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 park in. Uh, when I was growing up in San Francisco, they had them in like the Golden Gate Park. But, uh, but yeah, so, so they are not ready to admit some of, this, so, some of this evidence into their paradigm. They are not ready to really change their paradigm. Yeah, and even, think, you know, you talk about, I mentioned Robert Schock and John Anthony West. Go ahead. 
No, they're kind of, I mean, just to explain it and what I understand, it's like it's almost a financial motivation mixed with a, a reputational, egotistical kind of, well, we can't admit that we're wrong kind of thing. And it's not only just like, well, people's jobs are at stake, but people's reputations are at stake, so to speak. And when you get into these institutions, I mean, we live not too far from Yale. So I've brushed, you know, I've, sh I've rubbed shoulders with some of those types and they're very pretentious, uptight people. I mean, there's a lot of nice professors, but for the most part, you find that a lot of these people get on a high horse and they don't want to come off of it, you know? And I think when someone comes along challenging them, you're not just challenging their ideas, you're challenging their livelihood because these people have attached themselves to a subject, an agenda, and a narrative. And I, and I would say it's not, you know, it's not necessarily, we all have these kind of defense mechanisms. We have to in this world, you know, we get so much mail in our mailbox, you kind of have to sort through it, like junk, 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 junk. Oh, don't want to throw that one away, you know, junk, junk, junk. It, and it, whatever profession you're in, you've got a certain body of professional knowledge and there's certain professional standards and, you know, you're going to be skeptical of people from the outside thinking they can come in and they're not talking in the same exact vocabulary that is standard in the field and all those sorts of things develop over time, not necessarily out of malice, but there's also the potential that some of this information is actively suppressed, um, not just because people are protecting their livelihood or their reputations, but there is a possibility and I think it's, um, something we can't rule out, you know, if we're trying to solve the mystery like Sherlock Holmes and Scooby-Doo, that there's a possibility that there are uh, forces that want to suppress certain things for certain reasons. And I am convinced that that's happening to some degree. Yeah. My suspicion is that it, it's spiritual in nature, that the, the people who have taken the reins of power don't want the rest of us to have the ability to realize our true nature and our true reality, the true reality of where we are, who we are, and what we are. And um, the ancient people of the past tried to really convey that to us through mythology. I mean, and that's, that's why you see these types of uh, things happening in the, in the realms of mythology, because that's our key to the past, and it's our key to understanding ourselves, you know, and I hope right. I'm, I'm not uh, delayed anymore. Are we good? That was a good one. No, that, that came through loud and clear. I was going to say your, your signal's probably being actively suppressed by... <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I agree, and it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, people can, people can examine the evidence and decide for themselves what the what level of information is is being withheld but i think even without even somebody who doesn't believe in the spiritual realm and i do believe there is something you know there's something that where i can be thinking of my friend in another state and then he calls that day or she calls that day that it's like well, how did that happen what how, was there some kind of esp going on it's well, it could just be a coincidence, but those pretty big coincidence. Things, That's yeah, there's the thing, actually, you know? yeah, there's actually even bigger ones, obviously synchronicities and, and those sorts of things. So I do think there's something for sure. I'm convinced that there is um, a realm that we could call the invisible realm, the spiritual realm, another dimension that is going on. But even if we just set that aside, because it makes some people uncomfortable or some people might not want to buy into that, Dividing people from themselves, keeping people traumatized is a good way to keep people from, uh, keep people polarized and keep people from figuring out if you're pulling uh, a heist or a crime or some kind of a, uh, you know, you're some kind of a con job. Uh, it, the, the more people are connected to who they are and really, you know, that kind of that Kung Fu master type of the kind of Bodhi character that someone who's really connected with who they are. We all know people like that who are really, they're just in tune with who they are. And the more that everybody becomes like that, the less easy it is to put things over on people. So keeping people traumatized
and by that I mean separated from themselves, is a way to steal resources for yourself. If you're trying to take the resources of the earth, not to benefit all the people, but just to benefit a small group, well, you've got a problem because a small group by definition is less powerful than a large group. So you got to somehow divide that large group. You got to keep that large group somehow squabbling or polarized or having so many problems in their own head that they can't effectively get it together to say, hey, look what's going on over here. We got to stop that. Yeah. Yeah, and what a better time yeah. than now. To talk well, actually, to it's funny that. in terms of the coincidences. Oh, my, my bad, Mark. No, uh, uh, speaking of coincidences, coincidences uh, last night, uh, there's a neighbor, in my neighborhood, there's a stretch of road. That's for just some reason, there's two neighborhoods. We have, we have my neighborhood and the neighborhood right next to us. And there's one street that connects them. It does, it's just always been pitch black. No lights on it, no nothing. And occasionally I'll just go for a walk uh, through there. And last night I took a walk through there. And I said, you know, I'm surprised in the 20 years I've been here. No, they like our town never installed a, like a light, a street light here. I always was really, I, I just made that connection now. It's just like, oh, well, why is it not here? Today, I just happened to be driving by. They're installing a light now. <laughs> Can you believe, I, I was so baffled. I was like, they just installed a pole to put a street light. I was like, was I like that's, that's a huge coincidence. Yeah, and wow. so... And, and so someone could say, well, that's just a coincidence. Right. Now, but we could also say, you know, there's, there's kind of like a subconscious that's beneath your conscious mind. You may have picked up somehow signals. I don't know. Maybe there's like some dirt disturbed right there and your subconscious picked it up, but your conscious mind didn't. But your subconscious kind of told your conscious mind a, a streetlight is coming. You know, that's a possibility. It's like our bodies, our whole subconscious is actually aware of way more stuff than our conscious yeah. mind is. So that's another way you could explain that, but you can't explain. I mean, I, I'm not saying that I think that's what happened. <laughs> that's a cool synchro. I mean, I, those kinds of premonitions or that uh, there I wrote about in my most recent book is called myth and trauma. I quote some, examples from the Vietnam War where, you know, a family will, a family member will wake up with a horrible, you know, premonition at 2 a.m. and then they later get the call that their, you know, loved one died, you know, was killed in action in Vietnam. That happened like multiple times. In fact, I think the example I quoted was actually might have been from Connecticut, um, a Marine Corps, a uh, young man in the Marines who was only 18 or 19 years old. But there are many, many examples like that to where you can, I mean, somebody, what I'm saying is somebody could explain that as well. Your subconscious is picking up signals and maybe filters it into your brain, which right. is still amazing. It's still amazing. Well, what but if I told you right after that, I also said to myself, like, just, just out of the blue, you know, I said, we never have an earthquake in New England, right? <laughs> I swear to God. And then I get a text no more than a minute later that my friend in Boston said, there was an earthquake in Massachusetts in the northern tip of Rhode Island. And I was like, what? So that not only did then this, when I saw the streetlight, this was maybe like 15 minutes apart from, from the streetlight incident to the earthquake part. That's great. So I, I don't know. I was like, damn. I said today, damn, that's two for two today. Wow, Adam. That see, I think those things are actually. I think the more we're in tune with, like, you read these myths and they talk about a message from the gods, or you know, the hero is going on this uh, mission, he's got to slay Medusa, right? The story of Perseus and the Gorgons. Mm -hmm. And the gods say, Hold on, <laughs> if you carry out the plan that you think you're going to carry out, you will lose. You better pay attention. The, the Gorgons turn people to stone. So you're going to need to look in a reflective shield. Um, what does that mean? What, what are these myths trying to tell us? The, right. The, the message from the gods comes from, that's exactly what I had I think a, they're talking about. I had a question because probably for the past six years, I've experienced this more and more often. Me and Mark have had these conversations about uh, synchronicities that happen and do you think it's 
it is like has a meaning behind each one do you think like because i've looked into it online some people say you know if you experience these things a lot more often that uh it's a message that you know you might be on the right track or something like that or you know what do you think about what do you think the meaning behind it is if there is one yeah I, it's a really good question because in the ancient myths too they talk about sometimes if you read I can't remember if it's the Aeneid, which is actually later, much later than the Iliad and the Odyssey, but in certain ancient myths, they talk about dreams. Sometimes there's a lying dream. And sometimes there's a, you know, some, some dreams are telling you the truth and some dreams, and they, in some of the myths, they come in through a different kind of a gate. Like the dream that comes out of a pearl gate is a true dream. And the dream that comes out of a gate that's made out of horns is a false dream. I forget exactly. I haven't, specifically looked at to write about it but it's a really good question like are all these premonitions or um or synchronicities meaningful or are they all true um what i think is what i mean the way i would say it, i'm not i'm not an expert i'm not a guru um i i point people towards the myths and say i think the answers are there and actually your own self actually is is the real place to get the answers. Eventually, if you get in touch with yourself, that's how you hear the voice of the gods. And that's, I think probably you have more synchronicities. There's more of the types of things that Adam just described, or more of the sorts of things that sounds like you and Mark have talked about, the more we are getting in touch with ourself. And, and it, it's not something, if you read and listen to Dr. Dick Schwartz, he says it's not it's something that you can actually do every day. If you get down into self, you can check in with each of your parts, you know, Mr. Critical, Mr. Should have. All these, you know, those are the roles that they're playing. They may want to play a different role and you can help them play that different role, but you can check in. It's kind of like in the military, the platoon leader checking in with the sergeants, or maybe a better metaphor that would really relate that I've used. And I think I might have used it with Sam is like the the NBA coach. Like, have you guys seen the the uh, the Jordan series that came out pretty recently? Oh, the, uh, the, the Last Dance. Um, I don't know what it was called. It probably was, yeah. The Michael, yeah, the Michael Jordan series. Yeah, on the like, about the Bulls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look at the look at all the different characters that you have on the Bulls, right? You've got yep. Scottie Pippen. You've got uh, Dennis Rodman, right? Dennis Rodman yep. is. I mean, he's going off to <laughs> like party the night before the big right. game it's right. like what's going on and you've got michael jordan who's you can see he's a very intense competitor like yeah. even more than you thought when you watch that you're like he doesn't joke around when somebody you know talks smack to him on the court he's it's like almost like he takes uh, that as a non-human like it's it, just it, crazy how competitive right. he is and so there's these different personalities and who's holding that all together the coach right so the coach is like the in this metaphor is like yourself let's imagine a, a team with that much talent but with that much kind of divergent personalities and for some reason they've lost the their confidence in the coach for some reason the coach let them down somehow or they they decided that the coach can't handle it and they lock him in the locker room or they lock him in the basement and now they're trying to run the game and you've got Jordan, you've got, and they're all trying to step up, and but they're going all over the place. And you've got Rodman, but you don't have this coach figure that they all trust anymore. Right. That's what our that's what our minds, that's what our our plurality is without self. Self is that coach, but we've lost the trust of the coach. But it, can you imagine like the most perfect NBA coach who could balance all those characters and obviously you know, coach Jackson did a great job of doing that, but you have a self that can balance all those players, all the, you know, Mr. Uh, critical or Mr. Angry guy or whatever. They're all, they're all part of you. They're actually trying, the team is trying to win, but with the coach locked in the locker room, they're going to try out. It's going to be chaos. They're, they're going to be trying to win, but they're going to be at each other's throats. And what has to happen is you have to find, a way to regain that trust in self. They, they, when self comes back, he's, they're like, oh, wow, where did this coach come from? This coach is like, knows exactly what to say to each player. This coach knows it actually knows 
He's got it under control. Wouldn't you rather be on a team? Which team would you rather play on? If you're right. on a yeah, the the one where everyone's at each other's throat, or what a joy it would be if that coach showed up and you're like, oh my gosh, a coach that I can put my trust in finally showed up. That's what um, the more you're in touch with self, the more that situation is taking place in your life and you're more able to like win games and live up to your potential and that's when i think you're having these more synchros or you're getting this message and you're like hmm let me think about that message so i'm not sure that every single synchro you know or every single doubt that pops into my head you know if i followed every doubt that popped into my head i wouldn't do anything but that's where that that self can say okay thank you doubting part i know you're trying to look out for us, but I've got this. I'm, I'm able to handle this. Just, you know, that doubt has, that, that doubting side is helpful. It's got its place, but right this minute I've heard, I've heard it noted and we're going to do this. And the more you like get in touch with self, the more that you become like that team that's got the coach that everybody dreams about having that coach. Is that and so no, that, I that. I that's, that's my best answer to a really good question from Jay. So mm -hmm. I don't know, but I think the more that you, that coach like steps into the role, the more the, the self knows what to do. That's, that's the message of the, these ancient myths show that. That's yeah. like, uh, what was it? One of the things was uh, that Phil Jackson did was, I think it was mid season. I think I might've, I don't know if it was mid season or late season, you know, where playoffs were about to be a thing or was during playoffs. Bill, Dennis Rodman was like, he just came up to Phil Jackson and said, coach, I need a vacation. And Phil's like, you can't go on a vacation. We're in like, you know, in the middle of the playoffs, but he knew Dennis needed it. Like he just knew. And maybe it wasn't the right thing to do, but he's like, all right, Dennis, I'll give you a 48 hour vacation. And Dennis just had fun for like 48 hours, but he came back and was ready to play because he knew that's what Dennis needed in order to come back and play. And I, I think it's like the perfect, it's a perfect picture of, of you've got those players running around. <laughs> I yeah. <do. laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, we're coming a little bit towards the end here, David. So I just wanted to finish up by asking you uh, one last question that we had cooked up for you. What uh, in your many, many hours, I'm sure. Of <laughs> You're going to have to retape all your, you have to re-record all your questions, Mark. Oh, man, no. It's oh, all right. It's man. all right. So that's a great, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> even your picture is blurry. <laughs> all right. Mark's question was in reference to what's the most spectacular thing I've seen in the night sky. Um, I think the most spectacular thing is the comet Hale-Bopp when I was in the army actually. And I didn't even know that we were supposed to have a comet and we were out in the desert. This was in, I think it was 99, might've been 97. You can look up when comet Hale-Bopp came and there was a cult, you know, uh, associated with this whole story. 1997. 97, Hale-Bopp. And I was out in National Training Center in Fort Irwin, California, which is kind of the high desert. It's not far from, um, from uh, Death Valley. So very clear night skies. Now I have seen some, I've seen some mysterious things that are not as spectacular as that, but in terms of spectacular, I was walking back from a, I was, at the time I was a battalion, I think I was a battalion, I, I know I was, I was a battalion S4 and I was walking back from like the, the logistics headquarters tent to my Humvee and it was pitch black and I looked up and I said, that must be a comet. All right, so we just had, um, you may have noticed, some technical difficulties during the recording. Uh, we had to, uh, cut a little bit of what David was saying towards the end there short but that's not a big deal we're gonna have him back soon and that'll be the first question we start with let him get into that because apparently I missed this when the zoom call ended but apparently David saw some crazy purple objects in the sky uh, that's according to Adam and Jay so anyways I'm just gonna 
play for you guys the end uh, where David kind of plugs everything. And uh, yeah, thanks for your patience and thanks for listening. Yeah, l- let me know when you start recording. Cool. So we just had a little bit of technical difficulties there and uh, I'm going to let David close out and let all the listeners know where you can find him. Uh, David, please. Thanks, Mark. It was really a pleasure being on My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I really uh, appreciate you inviting me over. And um, I hope that people in your listening audience will find some positive things in the conversation, and most of all in the, in the world's ancient myths that can be helpful in, in their lives. And uh, you can find a lot more on my website is Star Myths of the World, which is starmythworld.com. Um, I do have a uh, YouTube channel and an Instagram account, and you can check those out. But uh, the, the website has lots of uh, videos. It's got a long-running blog, which is searchable, so you can search it for different topics or different mythological figures. And uh, so I hope you'll check it out, and I'll look forward to talking again in the near future, Mark. Festo, dude. Who are you? you just read it, dude. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I'm Don't listen crazy to him. For feeling so lonely. Follow us on Patreon.com slash NFTIC. That's Patreon.com slash NFTIC.